This episode of the Dirtbag Diaries is brought to you by Patagonia, makers of high-quality clothing and gear for outdoor sports, world travel, and daily lives lived in harmony with nature. Visit them on the web at patagonia.com. It's a really fantastic bike. People respect it. It's like driving a, a you know, like a BMW or, or you know, like a classic sports car or something like that. People are like, nice Bianchi. This is Blake Gordon, a 26-year-old aspiring photographer and writer who's driven by a youthful love of light, open spaces, and his five-year-old Italian-made Bianchi bicycle. I don't know. Bike travel certainly is just... It's loaded with that kind of potential to to get a flat out in the middle of nowhere, and some farmer comes along, and then you end up eating dinner with him and le- learning about a, a a portion of life in, in that place that you're not going to read in a guidebook, or you know you're not going to hear talk, you know, drinking at the English bar. In 2005, Blake had just found photography. It quickly became his outlet for expressing a deeply rooted awe of the landscape. He also found himself with an incredible opportunity. His roommates, Mike and John Logston, were set to embark on an epic bicycle tour from northern Alaska to the very tip of South America, roughly 15,000 miles worth of pedaling. You may have heard of their trip. The Logston brothers lost their mother to a malignant brain tumor. In this ride, it became a eulogy of sorts. They partnered with the National Brain Tumor Foundation and hoped that their publicized trip would raise $50,000 for research. Earlier in 2005, Blake had joined them for a few weeks of riding in Central America. The stories had been terrific, the riding was incredible, but photographically, Blake felt like he'd missed it. He wanted a second chance. Now he's going to get the chance to join Mike and John for their final 2,500-mile push through Chile and Argentina. He wanted to get the one defining shot that had eluded him before an image that conveyed the very essence of the brothers' journey. The funny thing is, that without ever having set foot on the South American continent, Blake already knew what that photograph would look like. Before he even touched down in Santiago, Chile, he had taken this photo in his mind. Well, like what I envisioned was a pretty classic, just like out there in the open. You know, South America is a pretty rugged place, and particularly in Patagonia, it's like very, the, the Andes are there and the open steppe. But I was—I had this, you know, picture of two guys biking in this open, raw landscape with beautiful light, and just to kind of conjure up that, you know, riding off into the into the wild, open lands. It was almost like a math equation: plug 2,500 miles of pedaling into a raw and lonesome landscape, add a few friends, and Blake was bound to get the shot of a lifetime. It's something every young aspiring photographer dreams about. It's that same motivation that pushes young skiers deep into foreboding mountain ranges or that drives aspiring climbers to Yosemite. We imagine these moments a thousand times in advance, but when we finally get there, we're often surprised. Epiphanies require stumbling. So today, we bring you The Reckoning. You can ride your bike to the edge of the world, but when the road ends, it doesn't always lead to neat resolutions. Stories and photos by Blake Gordon. I'm Fitzco Hall, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries.
Santiago. In mid-July, Blake left the blazing heat of his home in Austin, Texas, packed the Bianchi, his bike trailer, winter clothes, and camera gear, and left for Chile. Blake's first challenge would be to find Mike and John, who were accompanied by videographer Nate Alejo. The short story is that I took a red-eye flight from Austin at maybe 700 feet above sea level, arrived in Santiago at 7 a.m. to sunbreaking through the smog. They had to take off the previous day because the pass going over into Argentina was open. It's a very volatile pass, closing with snowfall one day, opening the next. So they took off when the chance was available. That meant our communication was really limited. Hopefully we would meet en route. If not, we would convene in Mendoza, several hundred kilometers from Santiago, and on the other side of the Andes. I was hoping to sight them on the road, and then get situated in the next small town. I jumped for the first ride I could arrange to Mendoza. It was a collective taxi with four other elder Chileans. We settled in for the seven-hour drive to Mendoza. After dozing off briefly, I began scouring the road for cyclists. I had my doubts, but then spotted some greasy-looking traveler in all black, talking to truckers at a pullout on the side of the ascending road. Sure enough, it was Mike, and the guys were just up ahead. I called for the cab driver to stop, and then realized I had everything I needed. No need to go for the next small town. Out came my bag and a cardboard box of the bike. Gifts of peanut butter were distributed, and then we assembled the bike and trailer. The weather was impeccable, but soon became cloudy. Not bad weather, but certainly winter weather. As we ascended, snow covered the ground. We continued upward and stopped for the night in Portillo, an international ski resort on the Chilean side, just three kilometers from the border. I went from a hundred and something degrees at 700 feet in Austin the previous afternoon to cycling up to about 10,000 feet and 20 degrees with four-foot snowbanks in the Andes the following afternoon. A welcomed return. Crossing the Andes was just like intense. It was unbelievable. It took us three days, I think. Um, and going up the Santiago, the Chilean side was like beautiful. And then all of a sudden we're up in snow. Um, and you have to just dart up this 24 switchback section of road to get to where the border is. And, and the Argentinian side is uh, much drier. And so once the snow kind of receded coming down, it's just like this exposed rock and all these light, light tones of, of different minerals and, and rock. Um, and the valley itself is just so raw. Like we had with, with this trip, we had, we had a route. We were going south. And that was it, more or less. And and there was a little bit of a push to stay on on a, a general schedule. But um, you know, you, you could you could hear about this town a couple of days away, and kind of meander that way and meander this way. And once they descended from the Chilean border into northern Argentina, the crew made steady progress. Aside from food, they carried everything they needed on the slender, detachable trailers. I think generally you you carry about like. 50 to 60 pounds on it, you know, like tent, sleeping bag, cooking gear for clothes, clothes. You try to have enough stuff to be comfortable, whether that's warm or warm or hot. And then like one pair of quasi nice, you know, pants that you could wear around town that you don't look like absolute, absolute like dirt bag. That's why you go, you go to these places and see like little tourist things and 
if you want to get a sweater to take home to your sister, then you're going to have to haul it, you know, 3,000 miles. At night, they slept alongside the road. By day, they logged 60 to 70 miles. The dreaded Patagonian wind that they had heard so much about, it blew from behind, pushing them forwards towards their final objective, Tierra del Fuego, 2,000 miles to the south. It was everything Blake had dreamed. We made steady progress through the open flatlands in northern Patagonia. The going was good. The place definitely had an edge of the world feel. This wasn't cosmopolitan Buenos Aires or the tourist areas of the Andes. There were old cars packed to the brim coming from nowhere and going nowhere. Whole families. With an overcast sky and scrubby plains stretching out forever, it felt like dust bowl migrations were taking place. The days south of Mendoza blur together. We stopped in crumbling general stores for bread and water. We pedaled through open highways and clustered tiny towns. This was big country. Although it resembled the American Southwest, the size of this place made the West seem small. We had a good stride as a group, camping out and being dirty. Winds were an issue occasionally, and we wondered when the landscape would change. We were looking forward to Bariloche. Mountains, a bit of revelry, possibly some skiing, the Lake District. There were definitely like hit hit the pad, pass out kind of nights, but then then also general nights where we just you know it was a big communal eating, you know, take two bites, pass two bites. So, but the general like morale kind of fluctuated, particularly there with the winds. Like it was wild. I remember one day we were cruising along, and the next day we're biking into headwind, and you're miserable, and you don't talk, and you just slump over and go to bed. A lot of the nights were filled with laughter. They almost always entailed huge meals with massive servings of steak, the Argentine cuisine of choice. We ate really good. John John kind of took control of the food. I, I ate better on that trip than I do normally. We were, I wish we had a calorie count. It was easily 5,000 calories, you know, like two or three times as much as you used to eating. In the late afternoons, while Blake, Mike and Nate set up camp, John would often ride into the nearest small town and pick up the evening's portion of steak. Blake remembers one night in particular. He, he was getting meat, and the lady asked him if he wanted, she used the word send this or con this, which was with or without, and um, I think he, he thought she said fat, and so he was like, sure, you know, leave the fat on, and uh, she, actually, she actually said bone. <laughs> so he brought back this meat with like, <laughs> it was a hip piece. They had this big hip bone in it. <laughs> but how do you cook a cut of meat suitable for Fred Flintstone while you're camping on the side of the road? Blake had an idea. We can use the, the trailers. They're perfect. Like, they have a grate and everything. By flipping the trailer upside down and building a patch of blazing coals, it seemed like they had the makings of an asado, the South American barbecue. So I was so excited to camp that night, and we put it to the test, and it worked marvelously. We had these like blue cheese and steak hoagies. <laughs> so it was pretty fantastic.
Days before getting to Bariloche, pain in my knee began increasing steadily. The fatigue of the mileage we were covering with little comfort was setting in at this point, but I didn't want that to be a reason to sit out, so I pushed on. One day we battled incredibly harsh headwinds. The previous day we had tailwinds, and the glorious feeling of that riding was still fresh in our minds. I think we made 50 kilometers, maybe 30 miles, in 8 to 10 hours. But it was 8 to 10 hours of hard, hard work. Like, the wind was that bad where you would you would stand up on your pedals and just, like, dig in. Like, there was no coasting on flat ground. If you, if you were pedaling and then let up on flat ground, you'd stop in 5 or 10 feet. Blake could also tell that the pain in his knee was turning into a serious problem. It had begun a few days earlier, as a faint, dull ache in the right side of his kneecap. But now it had spread, underneath his kneecap, and it had moved and settled in as a piercing pain on the left side of his knee. And I, I've dealt with um, knee issues before, so I just kind of kept my eye on it and tried to rest it and had a little um, compression sock that I put on it. It wasn't a good sign. I, 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 I kind of, like I said, I've dealt with the knee pain enough to know the difference between pain and discomfort, and it was definitely way past discomfort. We were pushing and pushing, with the thinking that somehow we would hit a pocket and break through. Wind has that demoralizing effect on a bike. The lead cyclist would be pushing and pushing, trying to pull the group, and then without announcing anything, just pull over to the side of the road. No one objected. We'd all just file off and stand there for a while. There was a keep-going mentality, and I don't think we realized how hard we'd been working until the end of the day. It was exhausting just to set up the sleeping pad and cook dinner. I couldn't eat enough food that night. The next day, the wind was lighter, but with some hills mixed in. The added stress of elevation was too much. I had pushed my knee too far. I tried just cycling with effort from the left leg. This wasn't going to work. The first inclination was, you know, I need a, I need a bus ahead of you guys and use, you know, the extra day or two that it buys me and ice and ibuprofen and, you know, see what else I can do. Blake hopped a bus headed for the southern hemisphere's most famous ski town. Bariloche. He just needed a little rest, he told himself. A cycling trip gives purpose to every day. You get up, get in your mileage. There's something simple, direct, and physical about it. Without it, I was lost. I came to take pictures of that. I mean, sure, there was plenty of stuff around, but what was the point? The rest was good for my knee, but not near enough. I was recalling my knowledge from college athletics in the training room and began icing and taking ibuprofen three to five times a day. I asked around and realized I could get a cortisone shot, like a whole host of other drugs, by just walking into the pharmacy and asking for it. The magic cure-all. All I've heard with cortisone is do it only when you really need to, and no more than two times a year, but it really works. Sign me up. found a pharmacy across the street from the hostel, walked in, and asked in broken Spanish. I could just buy the needle, take it home, and shoot up wherever I pleased. The hostel, the bathroom, the alley. I wasn't too well versed in this, so for an extra three pesos, a dollar, I got the pharmacist to do it. Great, I thought. I could get this derailed train back on track. We took an extra day in Bariloche, and I had the hope that it would take care of my knee. We started off the following morning. 
I lasted a few miles as my knee pain got worse and worse and worse. I just couldn't do it. It wasn't a matter of being tough. This was beyond discomfort. Yeah, things weren't quite clicking. And I, I don't think, uh, I really don't think it was possible for them to do, for, for them to click with, you know, being on a cycling trip and not being able to use my legs. Yeah, particularly after that, I was like, what am I, what am I looking for down here? Like, what's going on? giant double-decker bus cruised through the tiny town south of Bariloche. Blake was headed for a nondescript village where he could wait for Mike, John, and Nate. By this point, the Logston's father had joined the group for the final two weeks of pedaling, and Blake could ride in the truck their father had rented and shoot from there. At that point, anything was better than sitting in the cafes of Bariloche. Sometime in the depths of the night, the bus slowed, stopped with the screech of air brakes. The driver roused Blake from sleep. We stopped, and he, he kind of, like, rustled me and, you know, made the general international Spanglish motion that uh, we were at my stop. And I was like, all right, fine, and got out and expected to see some kind of bus terminal or something and kind of squinted and didn't see anything, and then the bus is driving off, and then it's just blackness. The driver had clearly missed the stop, but needed to get rid of Blake before heading further south. And I just got off the bus and was driving away, and I couldn't even tell, like, what what shapes were in front of me, like bushes, road, like, where's the road, where's not the road kind of stuff. And, and first first uh, thought was, like, oh, shit. And then I was like, well, I don't really need anything. I've got food, clothes, camp, you know, sleeping bag. Blake shrugged, crossed the road, dragged his Bianchi, the bike he could not ride, beneath a barbed wire fence, he spread out his sleeping bag amongst the murmuring cattle, darkness, and open space, and went to sleep. What was supposed to be a seamless journey across a continent had turned into a disjointed, start-and-stop voyage of bus schedules, waiting, and desperately clinging to that image that had been so clear upon arrival. After a bus here, a bus there, I jump out mid-highway again to rejoin the guys. That's become my on-screen entry. I stick to navigating in the truck and try to regroup. I can still document and shoot. It's less glamorous, but the ride continues. Two days later, I detach from the truck in the evening to shoot some and wait for the guys at a potential campsite. Their dad continues on for gas. I stash my bag off the road behind some bushes to shoot some images while zipping down the hill. When it comes time to get the bag back, all I find is deep tire ruts. Luckily, I had my camera and an iPod that I've been storing my images on. But now, no lens, battery, charger, passport, wallet, and on. Curse words ensue. I shoulder some of the blame, leaving room for resentment and general sense of what now. Knowing that I still had my pictures kept me free from all-out meltdown. To reach the very southern tip of South America requires crossing back into Chile for about 100 miles and then re-entering the extreme southern edge of Argentina. Without a passport or money, this would be next to impossible. It was obvious to everybody that Blake's trip was over. Dealing with officials and police led to the conclusion that I cannot finish the trip in Ushuaia, through Chile. 
I get another cortisone shot in the wasted, windy town of Rio Gallegos in southern Patagonia. We split ways in a kind of clean-cut, well, I'll see you later tone. We were going our separate ways after the trip, and despite this intense traveling, I wasn't really sure if I'd ever see them again the rest of my life. I bought my 38-hour bus ride fare to Buenos Aires. I had three pesos left over, and no way to get any more money. Fitting. Buses in Argentina are grand Mercedes-Benz built double-deckers that crisscross the country at all hours, day and night. They are transient machines, leading objects floating through the open spaces of Patagonia. I am perched on the bow of this cruise ship, peering out at panoramic Andean vistas through the second-story windshield. My clothes are slightly musty, but I think within acceptable limits. I do come from the land of Greyhound, though. My right leg is outstretched in hopes of appeasing the nagging pain under my kneecap. As dusk closes in, an unspeakably beautiful song filters through the remaining life of my iPod. My doubts dissipate and I remember what I seek. The changing light across the Spartan landscape captivates my senses. Even against La Cuatro Fantastico, a fantastic Ford dubbed in Spanish pumping out over the multiple TVs. It is these ephemeral moments of light and landscape that vindicate all my searching. We are making our way to the ends of the earth. Our ship rocks back and forth, occasionally shuddering as the road deteriorates and the driver sways across both lanes, skillfully avoiding the potholes that litter the road. The pastel hues of dusk in the desert are as consistently reaffirming a combination of light and space as I know. On the bike, this travel makes sense, even with the aches and pains. Detached from that, I don't know what I'm doing here, what I'm looking for. But now, cutting across the desiccated pavement, through hills of ochre, rust, brown, and sage, all fading to an ever-blue in the distance, where mountains drizzled in a white syrup of snow lay beneath a sky that is slowly fading to a deep violet, but still hanging on to the heavy orange of fading sun at the horizon. I remember what I am here for. There is little besides light and form around, and it is our steady movement through the changes of these that play out richer than any movie Hollywood has ever produced. The desolate hills continue calling my thoughts deeper and deeper into their fading ridgelines. I don't know if I said 15 pictures. And then it got progressively worse as the light got uh, less and less. You have to shoot a longer exposure handhold on the on the top of the bus. You, you get to a point too, like what the image says and what's behind it, and then then you start taking the you know the out of focus art shots that people don't understand. But you know, shooting through the bus window wasn't going to be all that all that great um, technically. I think I was kind of trying to construct it um, at, at times, which isn't necessarily a bad thing to do. But yeah, I, I feel like 
in hindsight, I should have been more aware of kind of these larger uh, movements happening. When riding, I, I'd be scanning, you know, looking for a good kind of visual setting to get that classic shot, you know, where the where the ridges overlap or the road winds down this way or the lights just right kind of thing. I was, I was thinking that would kind of define, you know, like we talked about, be the singular image that defined the trip. And obviously a certain one it certainly wasn't. It probably is one of those uh, junky pictures shot from the bus. The story behind it is pretty important. Did Blake get that defining image? I don't know, but if you're listening to just the audio portion of our broadcast, you can see for yourself. Check out the enhanced photo version on our website, www.dirtbagdiaries.com. Blake eventually made it back to Buenos Aires, where he was able to get an emergency passport and return to the States. He's currently pursuing a master's in fine arts at the University of Texas. You can see more of his work at www.blakegordon.com. The Logstons continued on without him and finished their journey a week later. They met their fundraising goal of $50,000. Actually, they ended up raising $75,000 for their cause. Music today by Cars and Trains, Latyrix, Burial, Frightened Rabbit, and Seeger Ross. Today's show was brought to you by Patagonia. If you've yet to check out their latest project, The Footprint Chronicles, it's worth a look. They've done an incredible, honest, open job at looking at their company's impact on the world. Check it out at www.cleanestline.com. I'm Fitzcahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Again, watch, as the water...